Hello, my name's Dave Emery, and this is side one of For the Record program number 700, titled Deutschland über alles. This program is being recorded on January 10th of the year 2010. This is the first program of the new year, so Happy New Year, and we're going to be plunging right into things. A couple of quick notes, as always, please use the SpitfireList.com website. I've got my entire life's work up there for download for free, the only... Investment you need make is one of time. It is the best source for information of this kind. And uh, also, if you are, like a number of people, interested in airing for the record on your local non-commercial or commercial station, uh, it is available for free as well. Simply contact me through the Spitfire website and uh, you will get instructions as to how to uh, put uh, for the record on the air. Again, it's absolutely free. Uh, no obligation. All you got to do is find out how, so contact me. Now, what we're going to be doing in this broadcast is accessing some of the vital information from the GermanForeignPolicy.com website, a website I emphatically recommend. And uh, we're going to be taking a look at the extent to which the Federal Republic of Germany and beyond that, the EU represent and are manifesting a very real German victory from World War II, and as we'll see in the first article from World War I. Uh, the Prussian military theoretician Karl von Clausewitz observed that, quote, war is the continuation of policy, or you'll sometimes see it translated politics by other means. Uh, German theoreticians for really a couple of hundred years since have also understood the von Clausewitzian concept of the post-war, that there is the war and then there is the post-war, and it is, it is as important to win the post-war as the war itself, perhaps even more important, for in both world wars, although German armies lost the military struggle on the battlefield, they won the political and even more important economic struggle off of the battlefield, and that is what we're going to be taking a look at now. If some of the things I talk about on this broadcast seem strange, incomprehensible, what have you, Please use SpitfireList.com website in order to update your understanding. Now, the first article from the GermanForeignPolicy.com website is from November 13th of 2009. It's called History in the Making, and it is a remarkable article. Uh, several things, several points I want to make before I read the article. What this article talks about is the recent commemoration in Paris of the end of the First World War, uh, that and the Versailles Treaty of 1919, the 50th anniversary of which was the, well, the 50th anniversary of 1919, of course, was last year. And what this talks about is the revision of history in the favor of, and decisively in the favor of, German revisionists. And whereas in the past, the commemorations in Paris at the end of World War I uh, stressed the military victory of the French and uh, the Allied powers over the Central powers, of which Germany was one, in this commemoration, uh, the Versailles Treaty was basically demonized, and the point was made that basically it, it was so sad that the victors didn't understand uh, the vanquished and that they had a common fate. And perhaps even more significantly here, what we're going to be taking a look at is the transmogrification of November 9th into uh, National Day of Mourning or National Martyrs Day. 
And uh, that's very significant. Uh, very quickly, the significance of the date, November 9th, for Nazism. It was on November 9th, 1918, that sailors in the, grand, the high seas fleet, the German fleet, uh, rebelled against the Kaiser. Uh, a great deal of capital had been sunk into, uh, no pun intended, into building a gigantic fleet of dreadnought warships with which to challenge the British uh, Grand Fleet. And uh, the high seas fleet basically only put to sea once for the Battle of Jutland and uh, never basically set uh, to sea again. And they did nothing to relieve the very painful blockade of Germany, which was causing enormous hardship on the domestic front. And uh, that was one of the things that led the uh, sailors in Kiel, the Baltic port, or the German port, to uh, basically raise the red flag and revolt. That revolt signaled the end of the uh, of the Kaiser's regime in the end of World War One, It was for that reason that Hitler selected November 9th, 1923 for the Beer Hall Putsch. It was for that reason that Hitler selected November 9th, 1938 for the anniversary of Die Kristallnacht, the first nationwide organized anti-Jewish pogrom. And November 9th remains a very significant date for Nazism. I would note that the Berlin Wall came down on, surprise, surprise, November 9th. And I would also note that in the Nazi tract, the Turner Diaries, the role model for, among others, uh, Timothy McVeigh, by the way, in unimpeached testimony from Carol Howe, an ATF informant. He was the protege of Andreas Strassmeyer, a former uh, German Army intelligence officer, the son of Gunter Strassmeyer, who was Helmut Kohl's chief of staff and the architect of German reunification and himself the son of one of the charter members of the Nazi party under Hitler. Andreas Strassmeyer has a very strong physical resemblance to John Doe number 2. According to Carol Howe, Andreas Strassmeyer was the real architect of the Oklahoma City bombing. The Turner Diaries were the role model for Timothy McVeigh and company, as well as the Nazi terror group The Order in the 1980s, who killed Alan Berg, the Denver talk show host. Uh, the Order was, according to a uh, former member of it, financed in part by, quote, German families in South America. Guess who? Okay. Uh, in the Turner Diaries by William Pierce uh, of the National Alliance, the late, thank God, William Pierce, uh, November 9th is the day in which Earl Turner, the fictional protagonist of the Turner Diaries, uh, basically uh, effects the climax of the Turner Diaries. He nukes the Pentagon. The climax of the Turner Diaries is a low-level suicide aerial attack against the Pentagon that takes place on November 9th, 1993. Now, of course, that's just a novel, and I'm just a crazy conspiracy theorist from California. Everybody knows that there could never be a low-level suicide aerial attack on the Pentagon, right? Right. Well, how would a German or any other European write the date November 9th? They would write it 9-11. <clears throat> Anyway, uh, note here that uh, 
November 9th is a national day of mourning, but now it is being elevated to a at least German, Franco-German and perhaps ultimately pan-European day of mourning. Uh, in the Turner Diaries, November 9th becomes National Martyrs Day when they mourn the, quote, martyrs, unquote, to the German Nazi cause. So uh, note here that in Europe and uh, first Germany and now France, November 9th is now becoming, in effect, Martyrs Day, just like the Turner Diaries. From GermanForeignPolicy.com, History in the Making, November 13th of 2009, Dateline Berlin and Paris, it reads... At the end of this past week, the establishment in Berlin was reviewing with great satisfaction a week that brought several victories for its partisan interpretation of history. According to observers, the German Chancellor's participation in the commemoration ceremonies of the armistice ending the First World War in Paris was a, quote, priceless political act, unquote. The transformation of the memory of the victory over the German aggressors into a memorial Leveling for the victims on both sides of the war, unquote, was accompanied by the type of criticism of the Versailles Treaty of 1919 that is usually heard mainly from German revisionists. Berlin's celebration of a Festival of the Germans, unquote, on November 9th, the day of the commemoration of the Nazi pogrom night in 1938, is, unquote, a front to the Jewish victims, unquote one that would not have been fathomable just a few years earlier, and is a statement that was met with applause. Quote, Making policy with history is staking a claim on spiritual leadership, is the way the press summed up the fact that the German interpretation of history is being imposed on the other European nations. This Sunday, Berlin will close the current Memorial Week with the annual commemoration of the German soldiers killed in battle, the Volkstrauertag, or National Day of Mourning. As usual, also, German war criminals will be honored at the ceremonies. Berlin considers the historical political mega-events drawing to a close at the end of the week a considerable success. Following the festivities in memory of the opening of the Berlin Wall, it was above all the Chancellor's participation in the celebrations in Paris for the anniversary of the Armistice of 1918 that the press considers, quote, a priceless political act, unquote. The ceremony that since 1920 had been dedicated to the memory of France's victory over the German aggressors was transformed by French President Nicolas Sarkozy into a memorial for the war dead on both sides. Quote, On this November 11th, we are not celebrating the victory of one people over another, but rather remembering a test of fate that had been equally horrible for both sides, unquote, the president said. Until now, this version, placing aggressors, and defenders at the same level was principally found in Germany. Sarkozy has reaped enormous protest in France. As mentioned by the British press, a few war veterans voiced uneasiness at hearing the German anthem and seeing German uniforms at the Arc de Triomphe, where they had not been heard and seen since the German invasions of France. Ministers and parliamentarians in Paris have announced that a repetition of this ceremony will not be tolerated. But President Sarkozy was applauded in Germany. The modernization, unquote, of the understanding of history is, again, a, quoting, essential, unquote, for the relations between Berlin and Paris, explains the Daily Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung. 
Concerning Sarkozy's modification of the armistice celebrations, the journal, which is solidly anchored in the German establishment, concludes with gratitude that, quote, admissions that earlier triumphs were mistakes are particularly high steps, unquote. As the French press rather ostentatiously noted, the memorial ceremonies include a clear criticism of the Versailles Treaty of 1919. For example, the German Chancellor did not lay flowers at the statue of Prime Minister Georges Clemenceau, who in France is known as the, quote, father of victory over the German aggressors and had been decisive in the formulation of the Versailles Peace Treaty. Sarkozy readily accepted these gestures. In 1919, he said Paris had not understood, unquote, how to bring about true peace, not only because the victors lacked generosity, but also because they refused to acknowledge how they were bound to the tragic fate of the vanquished, unquote. Remember that point, we'll come back to it. The point of view that the Versailles Peace Treaty was unjust and had contributed to a radicalization of German politics that led to handing power over to the Nazis had been a point of view held mainly by German revisionists, but is now taking up more space in the German mass media. The November 9th celebrations in Berlin had also been applauded. According to the daily Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung, this year's anniversary of the opening of the Berlin Wall has, quote, conquered a status, unquote, that until now had been avoided, unquote. The Daily writes, again quoting, in accord with conventions of the now expired 20th century, November 9th could not, was not even permitted to become the celebration of the Germans. Even 50 years later, no one would have dared to commit such an affront to the Jewish victims of the Nazi pogrom night that took place on the same day on the calendar in 1938, neither in reference to the population at home nor public opinion abroad, unquote. In fact, in the second half of the 90s, when neo-Nazis used the commemoration of the Nazi pogrom night to stage a public commemoration of the opening of the Berlin Wall, it was considered a violation of a taboo. Quote, 20 years later, the accents have shifted, unquote, continued the Frankfurt Allgemeine, and concluded, making policy with history is staking a claim on spiritual leadership coupled with the will to take political action, unquote. Note that, boy, that speaks for itself. Continuing, the journal points out that the presence of numerous officials representing their countries at the festivities showed reverence to Berlin's partisan interpretation of history. The Volkstrauertag, or National Day of Mourning, ends the current Memorial Week, which has brought Berlin significant inroads in imposing its partisan interpretation of history. Sunday afternoon, the German state-run first television channel will make a live broadcast of the Central Memorial Service from the German Reichstag with the German president as keynote speaker. President Horst Kohler will commemorate all those who died in the wars of the Federal Republic of Germany and of its legal predecessors, including war criminals. Also among the war dead being honored Sunday are the many German soldiers who lost their lives in 1914 when they invaded France. The fact that the German plans of occupation could be warded off at the time was no longer the focal point of festivities in Paris last weekend. On the other hand, tomorrow, Saturday, a preparatory international memorial service will be held in Berlin, which will set the mood for Sunday's National Day of Mourning, bringing together representatives from about 30 nations under the leadership of the German War Graves Commission, which will also preside at Sunday's memorial service in the Reichstag.
Step by step, Germany's political predominance in Europe is also being imposed through its hegemony over the interpretation of history. Well, one of the things that we've spoken about in the past, and there's much to uh, talk about here, although we're going to have to keep moving briskly in order to get through what I have uh, planned for the broadcast, economic control leads automatically to political control. And one of the things that grew out of the Second World War was the subjugation of corporate Europe to that to corporate Germany, which in turn was part of an international cartel system, an international monopoly system, which had basically precipitated uh, the post-World War I economic order, which led in many ways to World War II. And indeed, the European Union and the European Monetary Union represent the fulfillment of the Third Reich's goal for basically subjugating all of Europe and making corporate Europe basically uh, part of corporate Germany. And again, note the transmogrification of history here. Uh, in another of the Nazi tracts put out by the National Alliance that I've spoken about so often, Serpent's Walk, it ends, uh, like the Turner Diaries, with uh, the United States going Nazi following the devastation of the country with terrorist incidents using weapons of mass destruction. And eventually history is revised and the evil Jews and the demonization of Jews is one of the uh, interesting things uh, that uh, it takes place in those novels. And uh, ultimately... The uh, Hitler's birthday is celebrated as a holiday, and the Third Reich is seen as good guys who basically freed the world from nasty German control. At some point in the future, uh, time and uh, circumstances permitting, we're going to go back into uh, the growth of anti-Semitism, masquerading as, quote, anti-Zionism, including fundamental misreporting of the various wars in the Middle East, including the most recent Gaza War, but again, that's time permitting. Now, note here the statement in this quoting from the uh, Allgemeine Zeitung, the Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung, basically the New York Times of Germany. Twenty years later, the accents have shifted, making policy with history as staking a claim on spiritual leadership coupled with the will to take political action. Unquote. Very German statement, that. Uh, and what we're going to look at through the rest of the broadcast is their will to take political action. Not only basically using the European Union as a front for a greater Germany, but uh, in particular imposing their will on the United Kingdom, not yet part of the European Monetary Union. And uh, we're going to take a look, too, at proposals at reunifying Austria and Germany and reunifying German-speaking minorities throughout Europe into a greater Germany and the breakup of various states in Europe. This next article from November 17th of 2009 talks about the EU's potential as being a world power, and what we're going to look at are elements of German maneuvering to assert control over the European Union. Now, already, Europe is economically controlled by Germany. This is a simple uh, carrying forward of the political and economic realities of occupied Europe during World War II. In that regard, please reference the book Martin Bormann, Nazi in Exile. And what we're going to look at here, again, is Germany's insistence that it be allowed to control 
EU policy. The EU officially is Europe, but in reality, it's Germany. Just a few days before the future leading positions for the EU are to be designated, Berlin is raising demands for access to leading posts in the European External Action Service, or EEAS, and the EU Commission. By the way, the EEAS is the body which acts for the EU vis-a-vis countries outside of the EU. Continuing. As explained by the German Minister of State to the Foreign Ministry, Werner Hoyer, the EU Council President and the Foreign Minister do not have to be German, but Germany, quote, lays great weight on relevantly participating, unquote, at the administrative level positions just below them, which are considered decisively influential on Brussels policies. Berlin is giving the new External Action Service a particularly high priority since it consolidates the EU's external policy and is supposed to provide Brussels with new global power impact. German policy advisors considered that the EU has, quote, the potential of a world power, unquote, but point out that this potential must first be established through Brussels' external policy. It was under German pressure that the decision was made to place the EU's military planning and operations staff within the responsibility of the External Action Service to be able to directly incorporate military operations into EU external policy. In the meantime, the German project of creating an EU army is winning favor. Last weekend, the Italian foreign minister gave his accord. Just a few days before the EU special summit on Thursday, wrangling persists over who will be given Brussels' two key functions. Several prominent politicians are campaigning for the post of council president and foreign minister. It is said that a decision will be made soon. The government leaders of the Benelux countries are said to have good chances. The president of the German Bundestag, Norbert Lammert of the CDU, has spoken out in favor of Luxembourg's Prime Minister Jean-Claude Juncker. In the EU, Juncker is not known for obstructing German political projects. <laughs> I can't imagine that someone named Juncker wouldn't, uh, might not be known for obstructing German political projects. <laughs> Uh, continuing, Belgium's prime minister is considered a, a possible compromise candidate since, unlike Luxembourg, his country is not under such strong German influence. A candidate from Austria would be particularly convenient for Germany. For years, Austria has willingly been ready to support Berlin's foreign policy projects, but above all, the German government seeks to avoid having an official from Great Britain who could thwart German projects. As the German Foreign Ministry's Minister of State, Werner Hoyer, explained Monday, Berlin is demanding two things in return for Germany's renunciation on claims to the two top posts. Now, here's, by the way, what they are demanding. First, Chancellor Merkel should have decisive influence over the decisions, and secondly, Germany, quote, lays great weight, unquote, on relevantly participating at administrative level positions just below the council president and the foreign minister. These positions, whose officials, usually far from the public eye, can shape the EU's development, are considered to be decisively powerful. The general secretary of the European Council will be among the positions that will be determined. It is the General Secretary who is the highest administrative head of the EU nations in Brussels. 
In the meantime, the German Chancellor has made it known that she insists for Germany the post of EU Commissioner for Economic and Monetary Affairs, a great advantage for Europe's strongest industrial nation. After all, Berlin is seeking the leading posts in the newly created European External Action Service, or EEAS, which, within the framework of EU external policy, is extremely important. German EU functionaries and political advisors are insistently pleading for giving the European External Action Service special attention. As Gerhard Sabatil, the Director for Strategy, Coordination and Analysis in the EU's Commission General Direction for External Relations, declared the EU must be more decisive in its handling of world policy. Sabatil points to the replacement of the G8 by the G20, which has dramatically changed the global position of Europe. Whereas Europe was represented by four nations in G8, it has only five in G20. Quote, the decisive question is to what extent can Europe compensate for this quantitative loss of power, unquote, Sabatil is quoted as having said. It is again quoting, absolutely essential, unquote, that the EU's influence be reinforced with a cohesive external and military policy. The effectiveness of the EU's external action service will not only depend on its foreign minister, but also the personnel at the highest levels of administration. This is the level Berlin wants to have direct access to. It is quite possible to achieve substantial global political power, according to Werner Weidenfeld, one of the most influential German political advisors. Even though the EU's global involvement currently is rather rudimentary, Weidenfeld writes in a recent article, quote, Europe has the potential of a world power. It has top positions in global commerce, in global production, as well as in research and education, unquote. Weidenfels resumes, quote, this potential only needs adequate organization, unquote. The setup of the European External Action Service, due to start work in April of 2010, is serving this objective as well as the incorporation of all military planning and operational staff into the EEAS that Berlin imposed against the will of Paris and London. The EU's military operations and external policy planning will merge rendering consultations between the different branches of the bureaucracy superfluous, unquote. The German call for a joint European army is gaining support. Last weekend, the Italian foreign minister, Franco Frattini, announced that his government will push for the creation of a European army as soon as the Lisbon Treaty comes into force on December 1st. If there were such a European army, quote, we could pool our forces in Afghanistan, Mr. Frattini declared. Italy could send planes, France could send tanks, Germany could send armored cars, and in this way we could optimize the use of our resources, unquote. And parenthetically, that would be almost useless in the context of Afghanistan. What they need is infantry who would get killed, some of them anyway, and uh, they're not doesn't look like they want to send a whole lot of those. Continuing, Mr. Fraternity, Mr. Frattini said the Lisbon Treaty had established that if some countries want to enter into vanguard cooperation and establish a common defense, they can do so. Other countries could join later. This merger would deprive individual European nations of the possibility of defending their own sovereignty. It would also subordinate their armies to the European External Action Service in Brussels, and this would mean subordination under the power that can currently call the shots Germany.
And uh, please note that. One of the things that we're going to be looking at in the articles to come inside, too, are the real proposals on the part of uh, elements of the German contingent within the EU to further break up uh, various European countries. They're looking to break up part, basically parts of Switzerland, Italy, Spain. Uh, there's discussion of breaking up into seven different countries. Uh, this, of course, would make all of these countries uh, even more for, even more subservient to the German political and, above all, economic will. I would point out in this regard, we're going to be coming back to the UNPO and take a look at what's going on in Europe because, believe me, what happened to the former Soviet Union got broken up. What happened to the former Czechoslovakia got broken up. What happened to the former Yugoslavia got broken up is uh, slated barring a sea change for the United States. I know many people years ago when I started talking about the UNPO in connection with uh, the Dalai Lama and so forth and the Uyghurs, they thought, oh boy, they've really gone over the deep end now. Well, now we're seeing open calls on Fox News for secession, op-ed pieces in the Wall Street Journal for secession. Watch out. This, however, concludes side one of For the Record program number 700, Deutschland über alles. This is being recorded on January 10th of the year 2010. My name is Dave Emery. Thanks for listening.